Hey Trojan fans, it's time to get into the huddle with the Peristyle Podcast. The Peristyle Podcast is your weekly ticket to USC football and recruiting news. Don't forget, you can download the podcast 24-7 at our website, peristylepodcast.com. And now, here's the host of the Peristyle Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher, Ryan Abraham. Hello! Trojan fans, welcome to the Peristyle Podcast on a Tuesday. We're talking some USC Trojan football with our regular crew here on a Tuesday. Myself, Ryan Abraham, Keely Yor, and Dan Weber, all of uscfootball.com. Thanks so much for tuning in. We really appreciate you. We appreciate your questions and comments as well. If you want to call in or write into the show, you can do that. Podcast at uscfootball.com is the email address. Or if you'd rather call or text us, you can do that too, 424 424- 254-9141 is the number. You can send us a text. We'll read on the air, or you can leave us a voicemail. We got a couple of voicemails today. Remember to try to keep them under a minute. Uh, we've had a bunch of ones that were, were longer than that, so we cut them off or we, we won't be able to play them. So try to keep it under a minute. Put a little timer next to your uh, phone as you're leaving the voicemail, and it goes by quick. So just let yourself know, hey, we want to keep this under a minute so we make sure we get it on the podcast. Well, let's welcome in Keely Yor. Follow on Twitter at Keely is my name. How are you doing, Keely? Hello, hello. Doing well. Had a little bit of time off with July 4th. Hope everyone had a good and safe holiday, but I'm doing well. Excited to pod once again. Yeah, excited to pod with you guys as well. I'm back in studio. I was in Arizona the last week doing a little golf and hanging by the pool, social distance, just hanging out and doing a whole lot of nothing. So uh, that was a fun week. But now we're back. Get ready uh, to roll along and we're going to roll along with Dan Weber, who's also on the line. Dan, how are you? Very good. Uh, I hadn't heard pod used as a verb. I like that. Uh, I, I like that. Although we could so also say that we are casting our pods if we want to use it as a as a noun. I don't know how how to how to actually uh, diagram uh, podcast. We're how casting our pod. We're casting our yeah. pod. <laughs> I need to do a little fishing. So I'm thinking of casting. So casting the pod. Uh, that would be good. Um, well, we want to, before we jump into some of the different topics for today, I want to thank our sponsor, Trader Joe's. Uh, I like to go on the website, like I said, every week, TraderJoe's.com and find something as I'm going to go do my shopping that I would like. And this week, if you look under their recipes, uh, so they usually have something that maybe you modify that you buy at Trader Joe's and you can modify it a little bit. This week it's marshmallow blondies I was looking at. So these like little brownie things. You can buy the Trader Joe's Blondie Bar mix, but then you're also going to be adding Trader Joe's marshmallows. You cut them into quarters and put those into with the chocolate chips and everything. Those look really good. Looks like a great summer treat. So I think uh, I'm going to go with those. They say uh, there's an excellent stand-in for graham crackers in this chocolatey, gooey, bakery-style take on s'mores just in time for summer. So if you don't want to, you know, you don't have an open fire somewhere to make s'mores, try to make the Trader Joe's Blondie Bars with marshmallows inside, which I'm a huge fan of s'mores. Uh, I didn't do any on my vacation, but now I think, oh, I'm going to go make these now. Uh, there goes the diet, but I'm going to make them because I think they're great. Also, our friend Joan Lovis had called in, and she was recommending a lavender salt scrub. So they, she said, oh. I, this is part of her voice, but I had to cut off like half her voicemail because it was way too long. But so <laughs> lavender salt scrub, if you, for most of the, our female listeners, or if you have like a if you're a, a male listener and you have like a female companion or partner or whatever it is, whatever you are, and you want to get them a salt scrub, lavender salt scrub, she highly recommends that. It's uh, anyone that comes out of the shower with those, she says they smell great. 
Uh, but men can use them too. It doesn't matter. Men, women, whatever. <laughs> but uh, so Joan recommended the lavender salt scrubs. I want to pass that along. Nice. I was about to say, I feel like men can enjoy lavender salt scrubs as well. I don't think it's it's gender exclusive. Everyone deserves to be relaxed, I guess. Yeah. Well, I'm a, Shaquille, are you a, a loofah person? <laughs> you I, like- I go... I go back and forth, but I currently, yes, I'm a loop of person, but sometimes it's just, it gets annoying in the shower. And so, yes, I guess sometimes. Those are more of like a female thing usually. Right. But I, I have one now oh, in the shower. Oh, that's not true. <laughs> oh, not. Okay. Well, I, I have no, one now. It's not. Oh, just, nice. just a word of advice. I would probably say it might be time to not ever say ever, ever, ever a female thing or gender exclusive. I, I just think probably we all have to uh, avoid those kinds of terms anymore for the rest of our lives. Right. Yeah. That's true. I, I don't want Keely keep bringing that stuff up, but that's just, you know, it's a, <laughs> Oh my gosh. Yeah. I was just saying in the sense that I've known like my guy friends have like lavender loofah stuff. So I don't know. Just saying. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, I do my, I like to get my uh, pedicures. I like to do that. So those are fun. There but the, you go. the thing that I got the loofah, it's like hard to wash your back, you know, if you you know, whatever. So I got this one on a stick so you can like put some of the body wash on it and wash your back with it. So I, that's what I was mostly using it for, but. I kind of like the wash. I'm traditional. I like the washcloth from everything else, but I don't oh. know. we're <laughs> I'm getting sure in the everyone weeds. listening right now is like, this is TMI at this point. So we should it's probably, yeah, <laughs> but that's fine. But so try the lavender salt scrub is what she recommends. Um, so we have a couple different topics uh, today. If you listen to our show a couple weeks ago, Keely kind of broke down what the phases were going to be as student athletes were going to return <sighs> To campus, uh, the original plan was uh, to be July. I believe it was July sixth. Keely was the yeah. phase two, which would have been Monday. Today's July seventh. We're recording this on a Tuesday, and uh, Keely reported in the war room that it actually was moved two days out to uh, July 9th. These July are now. 8th. I'm sorry, July eighth. So today's the seventh to July eighth. So moved out a couple of days. Um, doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Just moving out a couple of days. Uh, these are going to be before it was only students that lived within an hour of campus. Now, anyone that's returning to the team, uh, could come back The the phase three would be including the incoming, you know, the new players, the incoming freshmen, things like that. Uh, so Keela, I know, I know you put the, something like that out there in the war room. Maybe you want to talk about phase two starting a couple of days later and actually tomorrow as we record this. Yeah. So they moved. Uh, the date originally, it was originally scheduled for July 6th, and they moved it, like Ryan said, to July 8th. And that was the thinking was that you need more time for the incubation period for if you are testing positive for coronavirus, you want to give that more time so that you have an accurate test. And the thinking was, you know, you, you don't know what everyone's up to, especially on July 4th, which is a holiday and who they're interacting with. So put more time between the 4th and when they will take their uh, coronavirus test. So they, that's why they push it back. So they did get uh, approval from the university to move the date of phase two. But it was worth noting that they did say, because the, they sent out a letter to parents, coaches, and student-athletes following uh, the announcement from USC that they were going to basically reverse course and go to primarily online courses. They, they had to put up put out supplemental communication to their, their, their student-athletes because some people were kind of like, what does this mean for us? So basically the update they gave was, 
We're still going forward as planned. We have approval from the university to continue with phase two, uh, but it's noteworthy that they, right now they don't have approval for phase three, which starts on July 13th. And that is the same date that the NCAA mandated or uh, that allowed that mandatory workouts can commence. So the fact that USC doesn't really have essentially approval to start mandatory workouts from the university is noteworthy and they're still kind of in limbo right now. So USC's in wait and see, they're continuing as normal, but they have acknowledged that there might be delays in, in future workouts and plans. I mean, won't they have to get approval from uh, LA County health authorities before they could do, you know, the kind of uh, team workouts and, uh, you know, with coaches and all that. I mean, that's, that's more than just USC's approval, I would guess. Um, yeah. So right now the workouts is what we're talking about and the workouts are, are are designed to be approved by LA County and those have been approved by LA County. So right now they're operating under the umbrella that everything that they're doing is approved by LA County. And right now it just comes down to the university. Once you get into larger group things like practices, which will come later, that's when that LA County gets involved. But right now we're just talking about workouts and that's why we're, they're in the little groups of, of pods and that's been approved. But what will they do uh, next week? Will they, when they're allowed to have kind of mandatory, you know, group workouts that they'll be doing in other places around the country, what will USC be doing? Will they stay in the eight man pods and not work as a group? Because one of the ideals, one of the things for the next two weeks was going to be, uh, you may not have a football, but you can do all the walkthrough stuff. It'll look kind of like football practice uh, and, and teams together. Uh, but if you're going with just eight people and all, all you're doing is, uh, you know, workout stuff, uh, you're really going to fall behind schools that are actually coming in with the whole squad and having actual, you know, uh, football-like workouts. So what does USC have to do to get permission uh, starting, let's say, the 13th for the kind of mandatory team workouts that uh, the NCAA is going to permit? That at this point, I mean, obviously I'm not speaking for USC. What I know is that they, it sounds like they will continue to do their little pod workouts for now and try and see how things are going, especially with the way things are trending. So right now it's kind of up in the air. I think they're just sticking to what they have originally planned and we'll see what happens in two weeks. So I don't know, Dan. <laughs> right now they're, they're still kind of in, in a wait and see mode, but they're still trying to figure things out day to day as things change. So right now, all that they know and that they're telling and communicating is about workouts and voluntary workouts. There hasn't been anything necessarily communicated about the mandatory part that is coming down the pipeline pretty quickly. Well, the other question would be, are the out of town students and, and the, you know, even the commuters, are they moving on campus now? Are they making uh, available places for them to stay in the dorms? That's what phase two represents on campus housing. And so, so they are so moving them, into yeah, housing. Delaying that a couple of days, part of the reason I believe was that you do have to make sure everything's ready because it's a, it's a, it's not just bringing more of the student athletes back that aren't local. It's because now you have to house them. They're going to be, there's a, there's more logistical issues you got to deal with because you're actually housing these student athletes, not just allowing them to come to campus and work out. And you're also, uh, you're going to have a lot more rooms to choose from, though. I mean, since there, you know, nobody else is here pretty much, I guess there's still some international students, although that brings up another whole issue that maybe we could talk about a little bit. But uh, uh, there are a lot of, you know, dorm available space. So I think that's a good thing. I guess we also have to think that they have to figure out how they're going to handle 
uh, feeding uh, the athletes, uh, and you know, not in groups. I'm guessing, but how how that all works is is still got to be worked out as well. Yeah, yep. uh, Keely. So, any um, as far as the timing goes, USC was already starting a little bit behind most of the other schools in the Pac-12. Um, starting phase two on Wednesday, so at least players will you know be able to stay on campus and you know that's that's kind of like a big step where now you're it's not just hey you can come back and work out you're going to be back there but like dan i think you mentioned or dan mentioned next week is when other programs are going to be allowed to start uh you know the bigger you know the bigger aspects of workouts you can do more um there can be full team kind of stuff going on and i'm not sure what for usc if that just means everything's going to be delayed a little bit longer, I thought we would know start of the season by the the middle of, of July. Now you're hearing people talk about, well, maybe by the beginning of August, you should know. It's sort of like we're kind of keep delaying these really big decisions that are coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Keely, any concerns that USC's not, you know, might be still get a little bit further behind some of these other schools that by middle of next week can start doing a lot more things as a team. I mean, yes and no. I think it's worth mentioning as far as the date thing, Ryan, that the Ivy Leagues are apparently deciding tomorrow on what they want to do with their season. And they were kind of the first domino in canceling spring practice. So that's definitely something to look out for there. But I mean, as far as quote unquote behind, the feeling I got from USC's athletic department was that the what normally what would happen in July is workouts and it's it wouldn't be as monitored as it is right now during a pandemic so for them it it seems that the feeling I got was that it's just going to be normal workouts and and maybe it's behind other programs who are maybe taking more advantage of this time period but for them it's like what would normally be happening in this time period PRPs workouts you wouldn't see a practice or anything of that sort so it, they don't I for my for my what I've discovered from them is that they don't feel like they're necessarily behind but they're trying to move forward with everything as possible given what LA County the strict guidelines that they're having so I wouldn't characterize it as behind for me I think they're just trying to do everything in a wait and see mode and whether or not that's a week behind or whatnot I think that's allowable in the middle of a pandemic although I think if they're not allowed to go full team stuff next week they're behind i mean there's no question they're already behind uh without a doubt in terms of the amount of time they've had with the uh with the athletes but if they can't go you know because basically the two weeks before the four weeks that they're going to allow them to have real football practice but those two weeks are kind of replacing the player run practices that you would see all summer because they're not doing any of that so to make up for it, you give them those two weeks starting next week. If USC isn't in those full team get-togethers, mandatory full team get-togethers, they're behind. Uh, there's no other way, you know, to say that they're not behind. They're be- they're behind, and they'll be getting more and more behind if they aren't able to come together as a full team next week. I mean, there's just no other way around it. And uh, and I don't know what the negotiations are like with, this, you know, L.A. Well, you know, if if they let, for example, 100 and however many, uh, you know, football players come together with coaches and staff and managers and all that at USC, how can the city of L.A. tell other groups you can't come together like that? I mean, I, you know, it's there's a whole lot of things that play into that. You know, if you guys got a movie theater and says, wait a minute. 
they're allowed to, you know, come together on the football field, but I can't open my, you know, movie theater at 25% capacity or something like that. I mean, uh, and then you're, when you get to that, you're talking about the state of California and, uh, you know, there's an awful lot of bureaucracy that's going to be involved here and, and getting them into full team workouts next week. My So my understanding is that like the walkthroughs can start July 24th. So there would be at least two weeks to figure it out. Whereas I think July 13th is just mandatory workouts for the team, which you could argue that if they're in pods, what's the difference in workouts if they're all together versus in pods? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and I, I do think, for example, places like Alabama or wherever, they're going to be in full, you know, and everybody has always noted that the, that Alabama has perfected the way that they were running full team uh, conditioning and strength workouts that were also very much football workouts. And at this point in time, I don't know that you can lose, you, you know, if there's any possible way that <clears throat> that you know, you can go with more than just the eight-man pods. I think you got to try to get there, although I don't know how difficult that's going to be in uh, in L.A. I mean, does USC get to a point where the negotiations are kind of like, well, we just can't quite, you know, does USC have to think about moving uh, the way they used to do it, moving to Orange County and going to, you know, UC Irvine and saying, you know, we're going to, we're going to work out there because uh, we can't work out in, in the city of L.A. I don't know. I, I think it's something people got to start thinking about. Yeah, there's a I mean, I think all of us were more optimistic, maybe not Keely as much, but she became a little bit more <laughs> optimistic. And then now there's like a lot more pessimism um, because it's just we're running out of time and you got to get there. We have to you know, we have to kind of see some progress and see a little progress, but uh, maybe not as much as you would like at this point. So we'll see. USC's taking a little more conservative approach and you know i think they're they're trying to keep the uh health of the student athletes in mind and that's where we're going so we'll, we'll keep you updated of what's going on there from a you know you go up from the usc level up to the the conference level with the pac-12 uh larry scott um couple you know a couple of guys that do a great job covering the the pac-12 uh you know john canzano uh he's up in oregon john wilner uh in the bay area did some interesting stories i know john wilner talked to larry scott uh, last week, and John Canzano talked to a bunch of people in the Pac-12. So uh, according to the Canzano's report, there was a, a, an email that was sent out to everyone in the Pac-12 uh, that works in the Pac-12, and there was going to be mandatory pay cuts for anyone making over 100 grand a year. Uh, it's between 5 and 10%, but Larry Scott, who makes over $5 million a year, is getting a 12% uh, pay cut. And there was definitely some people that work in the Pac-12 offices who it's really expensive they, to, to live in San Francisco and work there. It's, it's tougher on, on some of these guys, guys and girls. And uh, it's so they're at least the people John Canzano talked to. They were pretty upset that Larry Scott just didn't cut his salary in half and then pay for everything himself. Um, so huh. there's some pressure there. There's also pressure. Uh, you know, the, the CEO group has changed. So uh, I forget the guy's name from Colorado. He was the, the head of the CEO, the, the Stefano, or oh, I can't remember his name. Um, but the mm. now it's moving up, so the the power is actually shifting for the CEO group at least for the presidents up to the Pacific Northwest. So uh, adding, I think I think it's Washington's president now going to be the I, I gotta look it up. But all, you know, like Washington State's president was added to it. It's really shifted. So like I think Oregon, Washington, and Washington State are all represented in the CEO group committee uh, in the leadership group. So 
Uh, we'll see. But the, I, you know, according to to Wilner, all those guys, uh, everyone in in that group, they're big on football. So it's not going to be people that are just ignoring the football problem. And a lot of the talk has been, could there be pressure on Larry Scott to resign early because his contract's up in 2022, and the the overall TV contract is up in 2024. So you need some time to to get that worked out. And would you like someone else to negotiate that contract? The, the Pac-12 network has been an absolute disaster. That makes sense. There's no way Larry Scott should be the highest paid commissioner in the country. He says he's because he's running a media company as well. But that's been you should be getting docked pay for running the Pac-12 network, not getting paid to do that. So a lot of stuff with Larry Scott in the Pac-12. Um, you know, Keely, I mean, we'll get your thoughts first and then we'll go over to Dan. I know Dan's got a lot of thoughts on this. I would actually just toss it over to Dan because he has he's going to have so, <laughs> so much better takes than I could ever try. Just, just give it to him. Yeah, okay. uh, yeah I, just, I don't think there's any chance Larry Scott's going to be around to negotiate the TV deal. So what's the point at this at this point? It's just a matter of working out the details. You know, I mean, they may have a big buyout, obviously, but apparently, according to uh, what Canzano was told by somebody at the Pac-12 who put their name to it, uh, said that Larry Scott has a, had, you know, got a one point nine million dollar loan for his his housing when the uh, Pac-12 signed him in 2009. He hasn't paid a dime of that back. So I'm thinking that's already uh, you're getting you toward uh, the buyout, uh, you know, for Larry. But I can't imagine he's going to be around, uh, you know, for the the TV negotiations. He just he's got too much to uh, to defend and trying to, you know, keep the Pac-12 networks involved and all that where he, he almost couldn't say, you know what, we probably should have gone together with either Fox or ESPN and given them half of the network the way uh, the Big Ten and the SEC did so successfully and the way the ACC is doing right now. Or you could go the Big 12 route and you could say, you know, the Big 12 had passed the Pac-12 in revenue for the schools without a championship game or a network. And, you know, Texas and Oklahoma have been doing some of their own deals and keeping some of their third tier rights and basketball rights and things like that. And it hasn't limited them as a league. So uh, I think Larry is almost in a place where because of his history, he can't almost do certain things. So, so I think they've really got to, you know, get on the, you know, get on their horses and, and figure out in the next year who, who the next person is going to be and how they're going to approach uh, the whole, you know, and there's so many different possible players, but, you know, are any of those, uh, you know, Google and uh, Facebook, any of those, uh, you know, people, Amazon, any of those, are they going to get involved in this? Nobody kind of exactly knows, you know, what those other, you know, non-traditional broadcast entities are going, are going to be doing. Uh, you know, I don't know how, how good a shape ESPN is going to be in. Uh, you know, they're bleeding, uh, you know, uh, subscriptions just, uh, you know, and they and some of their deals they're, you know, they're making uh, don't make don't make a lot of sense uh, for ESPN. So I think this is going to be a very difficult uh, negotiation uh, for a product that hasn't proven itself at all uh, in the Pac-12. So. So I don't know where they go, but 
Uh, I, I don't think they can possibly go with Larry. And I think the Pac-12 CEO group pretty much said as much uh, in this last, uh, you know, round where they pretty much told Larry, you know, Larry was going to take a three-month cut in salary. And they basically said, nope, it's going to be a full year. And it's also going to apply to all these other – I mean, as difficult as it is, having the Pac-12 networks in San Francisco and and the uh, cost of living and all that – the Pac-12 also does have by far the most people making over $100,000, way more than the Big Ten and the SEC. Uh, so, and, you know, the Pac-12 chose to headquarters in, uh, in the Embarcadero that they pay $8.1 million a year for in, in rent, uh, which is more than all the other Pac- or Power Five conferences combined. Don't come close to paying $8.1 million for all of their other headquarters. So Pac-12 you know, brought a lot of this on under Larry's uh, you know, guidance. And so, so I think what that told us, and I know people are saying, oh, they might buy Larry out or they might. No, they're going to buy Larry out. He's not going to be around. He's not going to be a factor uh, in another year, I don't think. I think for the the sake of the Pac-12, they need to buy them out. There's only two presidents left. I think Arizona State and uh, and UCLA that were that brought Larry Scott in back in whatever 2009. Um, yeah, he's did some good things early on, but right at this point, no, he's just it's been a disaster. He's just worried about kind of taking care of uh, his own little fiefdoms there. It's 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 not worked. They need to get rid of everything that they're doing and, and, and start again. And I think it's, it's going to be hard for, for Larry Scott to go back on. He's talking about this long-term, uh, you know, plan that he had where they would own their own rights and everything. Well, that hasn't worked yet. The only saving grace he would have is somehow some, someone pays the Pac-12 a ton of money because they own all their own rights, but they've lost so much money over the years, not partnering with Fox or ESPN. There's just no way to even make it up. There's, it's just, they're so far behind. So you have to, you can't keep throwing, you know, good money after bad. And that's what you've got with Larry Scott right now. So hopefully the Pac-12 steps up, the, the leadership group steps up and does something. Uh, maybe it's better that the, the TV deal won't be until 2024. You get a couple of years to recover from all this COVID stuff. Uh, but we're hopeful that that'll happen. Um, I mean, go ahead. There, yeah. there are TV people who say that the bad judgments about, uh, about television and contracts and the networks and all that, that have cost the Pac-12 schools combined uh, more than a billion dollars. I mean, we're talking like that's like really serious money. Yeah. I mean, hundreds of millions per school. I mean, really, really, really uh, damaging decisions uh, uh, financially that will never be made up. Never. You know, that they were wrong from the beginning and they stuck to them. They didn't ever, you know, go out and get a partner it would have also helped the distribution, obviously. And then they, you know, they screwed up the direct TV and that's 1.7 million subscribers in Southern California who mostly chose, uh, you know, we're going to keep direct TV. We're not going to go to the PAC, PAC 12 and they just miss, uh, miss USC games when they're on there. So, uh, just one bad decision after another, but, serious financial, uh, you know, uh, difficulty for, for the PAC 12 schools for sure. And then, uh, one last note before we jump into questions, uh, a little, some concerning news out of Alabama. So former USC head coach, Steve Sarkeesian, they did, uh, they do like these physicals every week. I mean, every year, uh, at Alabama, the coaching staff will participate in their 
uh, annual physical. And he, uh, it was determined that Steve Sarkeesian needed a procedure to cor correct uh, cardiovascular anomaly before it became an issue. So he had a successful, a successful procedure, heart surgery, uh, on July 2nd uh, in Birmingham. He's back in Tuscaloosa now and expected to make a full recovery. So that they didn't give a whole lot of details on what was going on there, but some kind of, I mean, I guess you never have like a minor procedure on your heart, but uh, that's <laughs> as minor as it could be if it's something they're, they're, you know, cutting on your heart. Uh, but he had something to, you know, to, uh, it was a, an anomaly that they found and they uh, apparently fixed it. So hopefully Steve Sarkeesian makes a full recovery. And hopefully USC and uh, gets to see uh, how that's working uh, on September 5th. You know, you just keep hoping that that uh, that connection happens, that that game happens. Uh, I know uh, a lot of people aren't very optimistic about that, but it is kind of interesting the the way this all you know connects and reconnects between USC and Alabama over the years. There's always this sort of interesting uh, you know between John McKay and Bear Bryant and who was going to win a national championship and who did what, you know, the Sam Cunningham game in Birmingham and then, you know, the, the disaster in 2016 and the opener in Texas and all of those, you know, you've got all these little kind of subplots between USC and Alabama and you hope you get to see it play out again to see if, is this a new era for USC football with the new coaching or new guys, all the new guys in the coaching staff and all the new this is what we're going to do, and this is how we're going to practice, and this, you know, this is how we're going to prepare. And you hope that whatever is happening outside of, you know, football doesn't keep the football from happening the way USC wants it to. But, um, but having the game as the opener, you know, always um, you don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if people remember that after Bear Bryant kind of got embarrassed by um, USC with the Sam Cunningham game. Uh, I think that's when he secretly went to the triple option and told no one. No one got to see him practice. And they came in running a triple option that USC had no preparation for at all and just totally got, you know, flummoxed and trying to, you know, what are they doing? What are they running? You, uh, Alabama's running the triple option. And uh, so these, these teams have a kind of an interesting history. Uh, with one another and so uh, the, the Steve Sarkeesian thing and the Lane Kiffin thing in Alabama uh, I think it's always been interesting that Nick Saban has kind of gone that direction uh, for his offense uh, in terms of USC and um, that'd be a great kind of little thing to see play out again uh, with USC and former coach uh, Steve Sarkeesian yeah all right well let's take a quick break and we'll come back and answer your questions ebay motors is here for the ride remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease fresh installs and a whole lot of love you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own look to your left look to your right it's official no one's got a ride like this there's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, 
Whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. All right, we're back here on the Peristyle Podcast. Keely, we got some emails. You want to jump in and start? We do. Let's start off with an email from John Laub from Salt Lake City, who actually is a very loyal television supporter. So thank you for that, John. He says, my question is for Dan. I see recruiting is going very well so far for SC. That's good news. However, my biggest concern is that I'm not seeing any four or five star commits along the O-line and the guys they do have are not being developed in my opinion. Granted, stars aren't everything. I remember Nebraska used to win with massive linemen out of their home state. Why doesn't USC go into Nebraska and get those guys that Tom Osborne (laughs) used to? I would think that the kids from that state would love to come play in LA. Love the podcast and as always, fight on. Hope this email isn't too long. It's one of the shortest, John. So thank you for that. Thanks, John in Salt Lake City. Yeah, John, I think that uh, one of the things you're finding out now, and Nebraska's finding out that those players don't exist in Nebraska either. And and I think, you know, Nebraska got to be really good when they started recruiting both coasts. And uh, I know Monty Kiffin, you know, former USC assistant, uh, was the top assistant there to Os- Tom Osborne and, and Bob Devaney, I guess, originally, uh, probably before. I don't know if he, he made it through to uh, Osborne or not. But uh, he started recruiting like New Jersey and, and places like that. They started getting all Americans from from uh, the coast because they just didn't have enough players at, at Nebraska. And I, I, I don't think there are that those kinds of play. It's really hard to get those guys. Like, or let's say you go to Wisconsin and they're you know kind of noted for their offensive linemen, homegrown a lot of them. Uh, most of those kids don't leave home. I mean, it's just not, and, and you don't always have the ability to, to, to really know what you're getting in an offensive lineman because it's so hard to evaluate the, the competition they're playing against. And if they don't spend a lot of times, you know, a lot of time in the summer camps and all that, it's, 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 it's kind of a crapshoot with, with offensive linemen. I do think there aren't as many, uh, in California, as there used to be. I mean, you don't see the the Ron Yeri and the Anthony Munoz and hey, the the Khalil brothers. You don't see as many of those guys. Is it because uh, high school football has turned uh, you know much more into the spread and you've got the much better seven on seven in California and you've got quarterbacks coming out of California and and wide receivers and DBs but maybe not the same uh, same kind of quality offensive lineman. So uh, you, you kind of got to go uh, every, wherever you can go to get them uh, at this point. And for a couple of years, USC wasn't going and getting anybody anywhere. Uh, I think they're you know, making, obviously, an effort to do that. It's just uh, as, as much opportunity as you have being in California, being at USC, to recruit an awful lot of skill players, um, 
those offensive linemen, you know, you you've really got to do a good job. But I, I think uh, there have been a couple of opportunities in recent years that USC just didn't work hard enough, and they weren't good enough on the field to uh, you know uh, and bring in those kinds of guys who wanted to go to you know national championship programs. I mean, you got a guy at Ohio State um, who. They really, I mean, I'm trying to think, what's his name? Um, the Davis kid, uh, Ryan, from um, Modern Day. Oh. Or is it uh, from Bosco? Uh, the best lineman at Ohio yeah, State. Yeah, I forget his name. I know you're talking about. Yeah. Is, is a kid from out here. And, uh, you know, the Sewell kid at Oregon. And there were those players kind of where USC was, you know, in the mix a little bit. Uh, but, just didn't didn't get uh, get them. The number one draft pick of the Bengals this year was a kid from Clovis, and he played at Alabama for four years, a four-year starter. He started his first game was against USC in 2016. And again, USC wasn't uh, good enough to be in the mix for, for a kid who could go from Clovis to Alabama and start for four straight years. The, USC probably can't miss on kids like that in the offensive line. You just have to lock those guys down whenever they come along. You got to, you know, you got to have the kind of program. My guess is had Pete still been here with the kind of program he had in the mid, uh, you know, 2003 on, um, those kids might be at USC. And that's the difference. You got to have the program that those kids who are that good, uh, the program changers, have to say, okay, USC is by far the best program for me and not Ohio State, not not Oregon, and, um, you know, not Alabama. And, you know, that hasn't been happening. That's where I'd go. Yeah, and then here's the thing. Um, real quick, John. So, I mean, you can say stuff like that, but it's just not realistic. You can't just find big, fat guys. Like, you need athletic people that are going to be great offensive linemen that have great footwork and things like that. If I, I'm pulling up the class of 2021 for the state of Nebraska, and the only people that are ranked in the state of Nebraska, there's 11 total. Like, that's a, not offensive linemen, 11 total players. There is a three-star. The highest-ranked offensive lineman is a three-star kid from Omaha who's committed to Nebraska. There's another offensive tackle. We don't even have a picture for him. He's committed to Buffalo. He's a three-star dude. Um, and that's it. That's all we have for, like, ranked offensive linemen in the entire state of Nebraska, that's going down to two star guys. So it's, it, there's no one there that you could go get that would be better than the, the kind of pool of players that you would have in California, even when it's a down year. So yeah, I, I think it's, it's not one of those things where USC hasn't had opportunities to, to get the higher ranked offensive linemen they've missed on them and they've gone to places like Oregon. So there's been guys around. USC could get, but to say like, oh, why don't you go to Nebraska? Yeah, you're you're trying to fish from a pond that's like almost evaporated. You're, there's just no there's no reason to waste resources and go somewhere like that. This is a completely different thing. USC is not the kind of place where you bring in a guy as a walk on like you would at Nebraska. Like they had all these walk on fullbacks that end up being like all Americans and stuff. USC goes out and just gets guys that are really good already. Uh, you get someone that you develop every once in a while, but that's pretty rare. That's just not been in USC's DNA. So just, you know, look at the rankings. There's no way USC could recruit offensive linemen from Nebraska and live and, and survive as a program. So sorry to sorry to break it to you, but that's just not going to be a reality. Shall we go to our next question? Ryan? Yeah, let's do that. 
Okay, we actually have two from John Oakland in California. He's from Oakland. I always think his last name is Oakland. Uh, he says, two quick questions. I read last week that USC informed the Coliseum Commission that in order to meet six-foot uh, social distancing mandates, the university would have to set event spectator capacity at the Coliseum to 15,600 or 19% of the total capacity. If so, do you really think it's worth USC having fans at home games? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Uh that seems awfully on the low side uh, a little bit. I mean, I just think there is enough space in the Coliseum. It's a really big building um, to socially distance and have more than 19,000 uh, you know, fans there. I, I would think that's kind of a, a question that you'd have to ask yourself. Is it, wor- you know, is it worth it if, if that few people are going to be at games? Um, uh you know, is that being overly conservative in terms of the six? Or is that not yes. count? For example, an awful <laughs> lot of people have season tickets together, the family, the group, whatever. Yeah. Those people need to be allowed to sit together. I don't think you can just divide it up and say every single person has to be six feet uh, from every other person. So I'm not sure you can even do, uh, you know, a schematic that tells you how many people you're going to have there if you don't know how many people are going to be sitting together as groups because they've been sitting together for 40 years, you know, or they're all in the same family or whatever. I think that, I think, I think USC, they ought to be able to get with it. If you go under 30,000 in the Coliseum, I think you're not doing it right. Uh, I would think that would be a number that would be an absolute base as far as uh, allowing people to sit together. And there might be more than that. I mean, you may come up with larger groups than than that who've been buying tickets and, and sitting as a group forever. But you can't break those people up. I mean, it, it, it almost isn't worth I mean, if you can't talk to the guy you've been sitting next to for 40 years because he's six feet away, that that's just silly. I mean, that's that's ridiculous, to be honest. Yeah, and I, I think that's one of those things where you just did it math-wise and not human-wise, where if you have to put one person this far apart, every like one, 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 one. That's not how it works. I mean, you're going to have families that go. There might be five or six people. Maybe you make a limit. Maybe there's like five or is the most you could have in one group. I don't know, whatever it is. But not. I don't know what the numbers he's referring to, but I feel in, in that situation it's it's more of a trying to put single people spaced out throughout the Coliseum which I just don't think is uh, realistic. But if you can only put 20,000 in there or 30,000 or whatever, I think it's still worth having fans in the stands as opposed to having nothing. It's not going to be as difficult to manage fewer amount of people that it would be trying to fill a Coliseum, 77,000 or whatever like that. So, yeah, I think it's still worth it to, to put as many people as you can in there. But that number just seems way too low. I, I don't see them doing that. That doesn't seem uh, realistic at all. And then John's second question is about Under Armour. He says, Under Armour has informed UCLA that it's ending its $280 million deal that it signed in 2016 and that was supposed to run for 15 years. Do you think that this is an un- unintended consequence of, p- of pending changes to student, athlete, name, image, and likeness? Could Under Armour be weighing the financial cost of giving UCLA $18 million a year versus a few thousand dollars a year directly to the school's top athletes instead? Your thoughts? Fight on, John from Oakland. Uh, John, I think that may... <clears throat> excuse me, result uh, with the name, image, and likeness thing, but I think it's strictly financial. I mean, uh, uh, Under Armour doesn't have any money. I mean, they can't pay out money they don't have. 
And, you know, if you look at their stock and you look at the quality of their shoes, I know you kept hearing, I'm sure Under Armour kept hearing the UCLA players didn't want to wear their shoes or their shoes were, you know, falling apart or all kinds of, they, they were getting nothing out of that contract. And, you know, this is a good opportunity, I would think, with the whole COVID thing and all of that to say, hey, you know, we, we just can't do it. Uh, I understand <clears throat> they haven't backed out of their Utah deal, from what I understand. So, which was a much smaller, much smaller deal. The the UCLA deal was insane from the beginning. Two hundred eighty million to UCLA for fifteen years made absolutely no sense financially any other way. That was crazy. Why they did it, how they did it, it, it made absolutely no sense. Uh, but uh, but they did it. But it also makes no sense to keep going because they just don't have the money. However, how it's going to break down in the future, I don't know. What if a a kid gets a deal? You know, let's say you want to assign uh, Trevor Lawrence to a shoe contract. Does he get to wear those shoes in the games at Clemson? Or do you have to go by the Clemson contract? How does that work out if different shoe companies – or making deals like the NBA, let's say, for different different players on every team wear different shoes. What's going to happen in college if they, uh, the, the the shoe companies start making the deals directly with players? Uh, where does the coach get his money? You know, uh, where does the school get their money? That's going to be interesting. I, I mean, you know, they could say, well, they can get the money from the uniforms. But that's not where the you know, the money really is to be made. The money is to be made in the shoes, and um, I don't know. I don't think we have any idea how that's going to play out. Yeah. But uh, but like, if you had the choice of, you know, signing UCLA to a deal or signing Trevor Lawrence to a deal, uh, I don't think there's even a question. Or or the Fields kid or whoever or, or you know, uh, Keaton, you know Keaton. Slovis, I mean, you know, how does that play out? I don't know, but it's going to play out somehow, and it's going to affect these deals. And that's another thing USC's got coming up. It has maybe the worst Nike deal in America, okay? And it was always, well, it just wasn't the right time, or we're going to make it up on the next deal, they would tell you. And now, what is the next deal going to be like for USC and Nike? I don't know. Because if you're Nike, you're thinking, why don't we just cut deals with the players? Uh, is that going to be allowed? I, we don't. How the NCAA resolves that, what what the rules are going to be, uh, who knows? But it wouldn't surprise you to think that you know the shoe companies are going to try to deal with the athletes themselves, and not the schools. And will the school tell the star quarterback you can't wear those shoes? Yeah, I don't know. I think there's one of the situations too. Under Armour was trying to make a splash and it came in a great, you know, UCLA came in at a perfect time. Um, there was a, this bump where you could sign these bigger deals. And I think Cal was a benefit as well. They're backing off that deal. Uh, but UCLA got this massive deal. And the fact that Under Armour is struggling, they, I don't think they can uh, keep that going. And I think maybe the coronavirus is a, a good excuse for like, hey, we, we paid for this and we're not getting it. We're going to try to cut out of this deal. So we'll see. Uh, what happens over there in Westwood? They might op- might open things up again where they could sign again with Adidas or somebody else. Um, but yeah, for for USC, they've just been in this bad Nike deal for a while because, like most decisions made by their athletic department over the last 10, 15 years, they've been in terrible decisions, and that, that that decision to sign that Nike deal was terrible as well. 
Uh, but we'll see where that uh, where that goes. Um, we got to play a voicemail from our friend Joan. I had to cut the beginning off. She, you know, because it was already she left the three minute one, and then we, you know, then let, tried to leave a shorter one. It was over two minutes still. So Joan, just put that little egg timer next to your phone <laughs> when you're calling in, and uh, we'll get it. But here's the second half of her voicemail. But I want to talk about our quarterback and our our running game situation. And, you know, we have a mostly pro-style quarterbacks. I'd love you guys to discuss. Not We don't really have a, the air raid offense. We have a kind of a mix, you know, kind of an offshoot of it. But what do you think of us taking pro-style quarterbacks, you know, with Graham Harrell as the coach, as the offensive coordinator and the, court, and the QB coach? Um, when we really need, don't use a two back set and we need a quarterback who is really mobile. Can you guys talk about that? Because I'm thinking that we might want to start looking at recruits, recruiting more, uh, less pro style and more mobile quarterbacks, especially since the NFL is also moving to that to that system with, you know, Patrick Mahomes and um, uh, Russell Wilson and the success of um, uh, Jackson in, uh, with the Ravens, so Lamar Jackson. So anyway, um, love the podcast. Keep Let's all keep slogging on and, and uh, hope we get through this really bad time in our lives quickly. Thanks so much and fight on. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really good question in terms of if you could get a, uh, a Patrick Mahomes or Lamar Jackson or, or you know, uh, Russell Wilson or one of those guys, there just aren't a lot of those guys that throw the ball accurately and on time. And Lamar, you know, they didn't think he could throw it on time or accurate. He's proven them wrong. But uh, uh, and the problem, I think, with having that guy is – if that guy goes down, there's no way you've got a second or a third guy in your uh, organization who can do anything close to uh, to that that run that kind of an offense because it's so limited to the kind of if you have a guy with Patrick Mahomes' uh, athleticism and his arm, I mean that's that's unheard. I mean, when you look at the, the other great quarterbacks, uh, if you go to, you know, Peyton Manning and Tom Brady and, and that whole crew, um, they weren't going to run away from you. They weren't going to run away from anybody. But, you know, they had the accuracy and the leadership and, the, uh, you know, the big enough arm uh, that they could make all the throws and and all of that. But, um, you know, you don't I mean, Aaron Rodgers is kind of an in-betweener sort of a guy with good feet. Uh, Drew Brees is another guy, good athleticism, uh, but neither of those guys are going to run the ball. Uh, so I'm just not sure you can have enough of those guys. Now, the question might be, why does USC keep running uh, uh, a lot of read option stuff with, uh, with a quarterback who's not ever going to run the ball? And that's a really good, that's a really good question. Uh, and how does USC get more out of the running game? Uh, and I don't know that it was so much scheme last year. Obviously, it was injuries. But is it also the possibility that, you know, they didn't get themselves ready and during the week and block anybody 
didn't play uh, anywhere near uh, what they were going to have to play in, in the games. And they just didn't trust their, you know, their run game, uh, you know, to get the job done. I mean, they've certainly got four backs that ought to be able to run the ball with decent, um, you know, physicality up front. Uh, they've got to develop, and, and especially against good teams. And now they're going to, if you start against Alabama, you really have to be uh, confident that you've got that kind of physicality up front. I'm not sure you're ever going to see, you know, USC going out and recruiting uh, the athletic, uh, you know, dual quarterbacks. That, that just is not in USC's DNA. It, it's never been. And USC still quarterback you. Uh, so uh, I would think, and the availability of more of the, the big armed uh, West Coast guys for USC, uh, you just think that's the where that's where USC is going to go, uh, and stay with that. Uh, but you know, and even you know, Patrick Mahomes, as good as he was, he didn't probably take Texas Tech. I, I mean, I bet there weren't that many people paying attention to him at, at Texas Tech. I mean, uh, the uh, Chicago Bears drafted Mitch Trubisky over. Um, uh, over uh, Patrick Mahomes, and it was always like, well, he's an athlete and he's got a big arm, but I don't know if he's really, an, you know, that great an NFL prospect, and now he's got the biggest contract in the history of sports. And I guess we should congratulate Lee Steinberg and our buddy Matt Steinberg because uh, they've, got, uh, they've got Patrick Mahomes as their guy. So uh, uh, a great comeback uh, for Lee Steinberg uh, uh, in terms of getting back to having the, uh, those quarterbacks that he used to have. So uh, congratulations for him. But uh, what do you think, Ryan? Yeah, no, that's uh, for Lee. Uh, I mean, that's a, quite a comeback for him. He's, you know, battled uh, addiction and everything and, and bankruptcy and has come back and now has, you know, the highest paid player in the game. So pretty cool there. I think when you talk about signing long-term deals like that, a lot of times it's not recommended, but if it's going to be like, 10 years, like half a billion dollars. Like, okay, I think I could see that one. Pac-12 signing like that 12-year deal back then, it was great the first two years. It's not going to be, it hasn't been great since. I think this is one for for Patrick Mahomes. It's going to be great for for quite a while. So uh, kudos to him. And, uh, you know, he's he's definitely fun to watch. I don't know if this is an offense that needs a mobile quarterback. Um, I, I don't think he's modified the offense to try to fit what USC's had on the roster. I mean, he loves Keaton Slovis. I think if he had to go recruit a quarterback, he'd recruit a guy like Keaton Slovis. So to me, it, I think what he wants to do works. Um, I think he could work with a guy that was more mobile if you wanted to for, for Graham Harrell. But I, I think he already got the quarterbacks that he wants right now. Um, so I, I feel like Slovis seems like the, the, the kind of typical guy that he would want to recruit. So uh, just from watching what Graham has done at North Texas and here, I think that's kind of what he likes. So we'll see if they make some adjustments going forward. But uh, I, I feel like he's got the guys he wants right now. A guy like Slovis just seemed perfect for him. Yeah, I, I think the adjustments will be uh, the uh, ability to run the ball. Uh, and again, I think that's going to be a lot determined by how they practice. I, I just think they they couldn't run it because of the way they practice. And then they got all the injuries. I think that's the one thing. I think the second thing that, we, I mean, and when they could run the ball, they ran it a lot at, uh, at North Texas. And the second thing is, and a lot of people were missing this. If Daniel Amatra baby is the tight end, we think he can be, and he will be, 
that changes things a lot too. And I don't know how that's going to, how we don't know for sure how that's going to play out, but I think a lot of people are looking at this often and they're not considering uh, the change that Daniel Mater baby uh, is probably going to bring to this offense uh, and, and giving them one more matchup uh, for the uh, secondary that they can't match up with. I mean, there, there, there are just so many mismatches on, on this offense. So I think what you want is that guy who throws the ball on time and on target. And, you know, uh, you give, if Keaton doesn't have a hand in his face, he can throw the ball as accurately as anybody. It may be better. He may be the most accurate down the field quarterback in college football. I don't, and, and statistically, I think he probably is. And I think that's a big deal for, for Graham. We have a question from Paul from Florida who says, hello, Keely and team. I'm usually optimistic about the season starting in August, but now I don't believe it's viable with various increases in cases and the schools needing to be cautious. My question is, what would happen if they push back the season to spring? Does that affect scholarships? How does that affect the fall 20, 2021 season? And do you think all the NCAA would do the same thing? Thanks. Love your show. Paul from Florida. P.S. Join the P, the parastyle, and highly recommend it to other listeners. Thank you, Paul. Well, that's a really good question or a bunch of good questions. I don't I don't think anybody knows. Uh, would college football all come together and everybody go to the uh, go to the uh, the spring? I don't I don't know. I mean, that's one of the problems with college football is there's nobody in charge and there would be no way. I mean, I guess the college football playoff people could say, you know, if two or three of the conferences go to the spring, I guess they could say, hey, if you play in the fall, we won't have a playoff for you or vice versa. Uh, but, uh, I, I, I totally do not think we have any idea how that, how that's going to play out. I mean, just little questions. And somebody asked one earlier in the week on the P what happens for the early signees. If you go to a spring season, do kids that you sign now who are going to come in, you know, in the second semester, would they be eligible? And would they, would you be allowed to you know have more scholarships than than the 85 uh, for one year? Uh, would the uh, would the seniors or all the NFL draft eligible guys choose to stay? Would the NFL draft still be in April, or would they put that off until after the season? There are so many questions. Uh, how you would resolve all of those questions? Uh, I mean, again, as Ryan said, we're running out of time to come up with answers, with changes, with anything. I mean, it's just there's not enough time to figure. There are more questions than there are days to answer those questions at this point. Yeah. What Ryan, else we got, you, Keely? You want to go to our last? I have one more question, so probably should go to the last voicemail. Okay, we'll do the last voicemail. It's a little all over the place. We've got a couple topics, so we'll do a football and a basketball, and then I'll play it for you. Here you go. Hey, podcast. It's Rick from Class of 89 in Northern San Diego County. Got a question. I've heard you guys, obviously, I listened to you uh, when you guys do the show, and I heard you guys mention that all the freshmen coming in are kind of behind the eight ball because they didn't have spring practice. It's going to be hard for them to contribute. So my question is, is there a limit in how many players you can redshirt? I mean, can you redshirt as many as you'd like? And what are the qualifications? And can each player, is he able to redshirt as many times as he like? 
who only gets one red shirt for his four or five years at a school. Um, I'd like to know how that works. And then as far as like the graduate transfers and the transfers, kind of talking about the basketball team, because it appears as if Enfield is just pulling in all these graduate transfers every year. He is pulling in some younger recruits, but he's also filling in the team with these graduate transfers, and they seem to really be helpful for the team. Um, I just don't know if there's enough continuity with younger players leaving. And, and I wanted to know what you thought about the fact that kids in college and basketball can leave after the first year. It's harder for a team to develop as a team if they can't play like three years together. And I wonder how much you thought those teams that have been together for a long time, how much that impacts how well they do because they've been able to play together for so long. Anyways, thanks. Sorry about the long question. Bye. Um, I think it's a good point. I, I think it's it's a not a bad strategy for Andy Enfield to go with grad transfers. USC is kind of an attractive place, uh, I would think, for kids that have been, you know, maybe one playing in the Ivy League or, uh, you know, Long Beach State or wherever, and not quite gotten a chance to to show what they could do at the at the next level. And looking around, you get a chance to really get a sense of what kind of a kid you're looking at if they're graduating, you know, from, especially from a, a, you know, a a school like a Columbia last year or whatever. Um, But it does make it tough. It's tough at every level in college basketball to create some continuity because uh, the Kentuckys or the North Carolinas or the Dukes are now, you know, who thought Duke was going to go to the one and out route, but they've certainly gone that, that route. And you probably, if you're Mike Krzyzewski, can't, uh, install everything that you want to do in one year with a kid who's going to be in the NFL or N- NBA the next year. So uh, I think that's a problem for everybody. I mean, the sweet spot is sort of the, oh, Villanova kids maybe that are really pretty good and pretty developed when they get to college, but they're not quite the kind of kids that are going to be lottery you know, picks in the NBA. And so they stay together and they've got a really good coach and a really good program. Uh, can USC hit that sweet spot? I don't know. They, they probably haven't yet. You know, if you get the good, really good player uh, like this year, he's gone. And you can't expect them not to be gone. But I, I think it's an interesting way. I think it's the one way you can kind of try to make up for you're going to not have everybody stay all, you know, all those four years anyway. So better to maybe fill in with uh, with the, you know, the one and done kids. As far as the red shirts, they're allowed one. I mean, they've got five years to they're, they're allowed to play four years of eligibility in five years. Uh, and occasionally if there's a medical issue that carries over from one year to the next, you could, you could play a sixth year, uh, like Daniel Matarbevi is, is doing, but, uh, uh, but basically you get, you get the one red shirt year. Now it's easier to, to do that because they're giving you four games in another year where you can play four games. And it used to be you played a play and you, you lost your eligibility for that year. Now you can play four games and still redshirt. So uh, that's kind of changing the parameters of, of redshirting. But basically you get you get one shot at, at redshirting. And I think there are no limits. to You can redshirt everybody if you want. I think USC probably is going to redshirt 
everybody that didn't come in for the spring, which is all but three, I guess. Uh, and, and those three kids, I think, uh, that came in in the spring and got the one day of spring, you know, practice and, and all of that, but they're part of the team. I think they're all going to, they're all going to have a chance to play. Obviously Gary Bryant is clearly going to have a chance to play, but, uh, but I don't know if there are any more questions in there about red shirts, but I think that kind of hits all of them. Yeah. You can't, uh, you can't just red shirt every other year. There's usually have four to, I mean, five years to play four. So that's the typical of what you would have. Uh, there's, there's exceptions, but that's basically what goes on. I mean, in effect, they can redshirt you by not playing you, but you—that still counts as a year of your eligibility. Uh, once they, once you've taken one, then from then on, uh, whatever happens, it's not uh, not technically a redshirt, even if you don't play. Mm-hmm. And now to our last question, and of course, it's from our buddy Dan, class of 1962, who says, "Hi, Keely, Ryan, and Dan." The NCAA is hypocritical when it comes to equality in college athletics. Because of the virus, we are talking about the revenue streams for colleges, which points out the inequities in college sports. Those conferences and schools with lots of money have a distinct advantage over less well-funded schools. With lots of money, you can offer a recruit top coaching, facilities, and publicity. Isn't that an unfair inducement to attend a school? If the NCAA wanted equality, there should be a hard cap on on athletic spending and especially a coach's salary. Additional money earned by the athletic department above the cap could go into the general fund of the university to lower tuition for all students. What are your thoughts on a money cap for college athletics to lower tuition for, uh, sorry, outside of scholarships being that tuition is different at every school? I'm talking about coaches' salaries and administrative costs. Fight on and win. Dan, class of 1962. Hmm. I'm, I, I, I'm sensing maybe a little sarcastic uh uh, question there, Dan. Uh, I, I'm I'm not absolutely certain that you uh, you want that money cap or that you could put a cap on coaches' salaries and budgets and things like that. I think those would be, uh, as do we say, unconstitutional. Uh, probably, uh, you know. I, I just think you, I don't think you can limit uh, you know the quote free market like that. And um, I would say. Probably there's there's no way to do that, and I'm not sure you'd want to e- either because you would be limiting the schools that work harder, uh, work smarter, have a better fan base, and all of that to say, well, you can't, you know, hey Alabama, you can't spend any more money than Eastern Michigan. Uh, probably not. I, I I don't I don't think that works. Uh, you know, they do a little bit in terms of limiting how many grad assistants you can have or how many coaches you can have on the staff. So there is some of that attempt or how many scholarships you're allowed 85. Uh, there is some attempt to create a, a level playing field, but obviously there's not a level playing field. But I mean, I think you you probably don't want to go back to the good old days where uh you could you could recruit as many players as you wanted, and there was no limit for scholarships because then USC's uh, uh, theory was if we recruit everybody on the West Coast who can play, there won't be anybody left to play at those other schools, and they kind of did that a little bit, uh, and and Kentucky used to do that in basketball with Adolph Rupp and and that kind of thing, but you probably need those limits. I'm not sure you can go to that next limit and. And, and say coaches can't make this much money. I think they'd go, they, they would take that to court 
so yeah. fast your head would spin. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, no, that's not gonna work. It's not like <laughs> capitalism, baby. No, that's I mean, you're not gonna limit what Alabama is gonna be able to do or uh, Ohio State's gonna be able to do and try to put them on the same page as Akron or Walford or something like that. It's just, it's just that that's not gonna work. So, um, there can be some limits for sure. Uh, I mean, there might be. We might see more limits, especially with this uh, name, image, likeness stuff. I don't know, but you you can't just say, well, that's not the luck department. You can only spend this much money. That that just would not work, Dan. Sorry, couldn't. Uh, I I don't see that happening at all. Well, there you go. All right, <laughs> let's well, gonna wrap it up, I guess. Uh, well, hey, good stuff. It's gonna be back in the studio again, and uh, we'll have Harvey Hyde on tomorrow, so we'll have another show. Uh, if you have any questions, you want to send them in podcast at uscfootball.com. If you have any more questions for the coach, uh, we took last week off uh, when I was out of town. So we'll get him back and get his thoughts on kind of everything that's going on. It'll be day one of uh, phase two when we record that. So see if we get any news uh, stuff out of that. Hopefully no more positive tests. They've been, the numbers have been pretty good. I think Notre Dame had 103 football players tested and none of them well, and were that's, positive. Not only was it great that no positive tests out of 103, I think the thing that ought to, worry you a little bit is USC had 56 players working out Notre Dame had 103 that ought to make you say I don't you know you want to talk about leveling the playing field that might be a place where it'd be pretty good thing to be doing but but that those are things I I think I'm watching a little bit Notre Dame had 103 USC had 56 Hmm. yeah you can bubble I think you can bubble a lot easier and uh South Bend than you can in Los Angeles. Um, you know, maybe it's a little easier in Tuscaloosa, but they had more guys testing positive. But again, if they test positive early, that's probably better than testing positive uh, in early September or late uh, August when things are getting really hairy. So we'll see uh, what goes on there. But phase two will be tomorrow on Wednesday if you're listening to this uh, the day it comes out. But good stuff, uh, Dan and Keely. Keely, thanks again for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. And I this hope ought everyone... to be a big way. I, I was just going to say, this ought to be between now and next week. We ought to know a whole lot more next week, I think, in and, and so many ways. And let's just hope, you know, we get the back together next week that we have a lot more that we can really have a, a sense of where this is all going. Yeah, well, I hope so. I've been I'm saying that for a while. We should know more in the next week or two. And it should know <laughs> It keeps kind of getting delayed. The problem is that what we've known the last couple of weeks have not been in the po- It's not been positive for the most part. So, um, but we're still there, still on track. Uh, the phase is, you know, a couple of days late for phase two, but we'll see how things progress. And uh, we're all crossing our fingers that we do. Everyone does stuff right. And we get a college football season. So that's Keely, Dan. I'm Ryan. Thanks for tuning in to the Peristyle podcast. And we will talk to you next time. You may have noticed that shopping at Trader Joe's is unlike shopping at other markets. People ask us all the time how we manage to have such unique, interesting, and delicious products at such great everyday prices. This is Dan Bain of Trader Joe's. The answer is simple. It's all in the way we do business. We buy directly from the manufacturer whenever possible. This helps to keep our costs low, and we pass those savings on to you. No gimmicks, just great values at honest prices. Every day at Trader Joe's. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Peristyle Podcast, presented by uscfootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting.
Don't forget, you can automatically download the podcast directly to your smartphone or tablet for free. Just click the iTunes link on peristylepodcast.com or search for Peristyle Podcast at the iTunes Music Store. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.